This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hammerich. Today, on Episode 9 of Season 3. For annual weeds, if you can keep them weed-free from the 5-node stage to the 10-node stage, if you can control weeds in that zone, you're home free. That's it. You don't have to worry about the weeds that start after that. And if you control them by the 5-node stage, they haven't done enough damage. So if you keep them weed-free in that period, you've done your job. Dr. Steve Shirtliff joins the show to talk about weed management in lentils. Steve is a professor in the Department of Plant Sciences at the University of Saskatchewan. His research, which spans over the past couple of decades, has focused on agronomy with extensive work on weed management and impulses specifically. Steve and I talk about some of the challenges in lentils when it comes to weed management and some of the latest research, innovation, and best practices in this area. As you're about to hear, Steve is both a knowledgeable expert and an engaging teacher, so you're really in for a treat in this episode. To kick things off, Steve's going to give us some background about how we first started looking at organic weed management and lentils. There was a very fortuitous thing happened to me. It's something that's almost never, ever happened to me before. I got a phone call and I was invited to this meeting. It was the, the Ministry of Agriculture here. They were saying that they were interested in doing work on uh, organic lentils. They thought that there was an opportunity then. There was more of a political push for the organic movement at that time because of the government that was in power. And they were wondering if I was interested. And I said, yes. But then the first thing I thought, organic lentils. Is that even possible? You know, I love lentils and I love eating them and everything. But as far as if, if you were going to design a crop that was competitive and aggressive and weed suppressive, Lentil would be your ideotype not to design, right? Because it's short, you know, and it has that, you know, that kind of Randy Newman problem of, you know, short plants have nobody to love them. So I kind of hedged my bet when I started that project. I said, well, can I work on peas too? Because I thought, well, I could probably figure out how to organically grow peas. So we did that. But it turns out that lentils, my initial skepticism of being able to grow them without herbicides i.e. organic at that time, you know, and really for lentils, other, you know, the, there's some disease issues sometimes that require chemicals, but under organic conditions, the big thing is no weed control because, you know, you don't need nitrogen fertilizer. They're not that heavy of users of other nutrients. So if you can get the weed control down, you can successfully grow them. So that started this journey that, oh, I should look back on when I started that, but it's got to be closing in that we've been working on different aspects of uh, weed control in, in lentil for almost, I would, maybe not 20 years, but probably 16, 18 years. And over that period of time, Steve and his colleagues and graduate students have had the chance to explore a lot of different possibilities for integrated weed management in pulses. One practice that's come out of that that's made a significant difference in lentils has been increasing seeding rates. The first thing we looked at, and I have a student, Julia Baird, uh, who's a was a great student of mine. The first thing we started looking at was seeding rate. It's just this idea that, you know, if we get more plants there, you can get a full canopy sooner, suppress weeds. And this idea that if you can get a competitive canopy, then you can not have that problem of having open space and weeds can kind of find a way and break through. And, you know, once they're on top of that lentil canopy, you know, it's kind of the competition's over because, you know, competition's really really a game. It's not a fair competition game. If you have a canopy above another plant and you can shade them out, well, you're getting that much more light and can fix that much more carbon and get that much bigger. So it's, it's an asymmetric problem, you know, so that if you can suppress something, you're doing well. But as soon as it breaks through, 
it's a problem. So we we went onto organic farms, you know, used real organic weeds and, you know, but we increased the seeding rate and like a fair bit and kind of ended up that, you know, we found that basically as soon as you started to increase your seeding rate, you got more crop biomass. That meant there was less weed biomass that was there. And it was essentially just kind of almost a replacement thing that the more crop biomass you got there, you got that much less weed biomass. And so, you know, for example, at kind of the original seeding rate, we were growing about half the biomass we were growing was about was weeds. And if we, you know, doubled it or tripled it, we got that down to about maybe two thirds to three quarters crop and that much weeds and still a fair number of weeds. But we were able to successfully grow lentils. You know, I think we averaged about 1,200 pounds an acre. You know, organic premiums is quite a well-paying crop organically. So that launched it off. But of course, increasing the seeding rate isn't the only answer for organic weed management. They've also looked at a variety of mechanical control methods and tried to determine which would give producers the most optimal weed control. We also had a mechanical tying weeder, and we were doing some mechanical weed control. That project was taken on by Alexander Alba. And uh, what he had been running into is we've done a bit of work and my, a colleague of mine, Eric Johnson, had also done some work looking at um, different implements. We'd had that harrow. Eric had also been doing some work with the rotary hoe and looking at the tolerance in lentils in actually all pulses crops to, to, to rotary hoeing and finding out that they're all quite tolerant to it. And then, uh, and we had some evidence from some other experiments that the weed control was pretty good. And then there was also the inter-row cultivation, you know, either the row, the camera guided systems or the, um, in our case, the research plot wise, we use the graduate student guided system where they would just, you know, stand there, the, the bio-optical uh, muscular guided system, if you want. But so just, yeah. And so the question we always got is, well, what what implement works better? What should I buy? You know, I did a lot of extension up here. And so you'd be going to these different meetings and people would say, well, if you had to pick one, what would you buy? And I always like, well, I'm not sure. It kind of depends. So we initiated an experiment that kind of systematically looked at using those three um, implements, as long with some agronomy, like increasing your seeding rate and either together or in combinations, which ones gave the, the most optimal weed control under the situations that we observed. And you know, we did that over four site years. And um, to cut to the chase, we found that we could get, we'd gotten better at kind of doing it. And Alex, Alex was just, you know, a phenomenal graduate student, especially in his level of commitment to it, because he optimized the timing of everything. Like he was like, he learned how these machines work and, you know, and like, you know, certain things like a rotary hole only works well when the soil is dry. You know, with a rotary hole, you got to get the weeds when they're just, still in the seedling stage, people talk about the white thread stage. And it'll only take out, it won't take out your wild oats, but it'll take out the small broadleaves and foxtails and small seeded grasses, those shallow emerges. So he was able to do that really well. So what we found out was that, well, so if I could sum up the findings, overall, the heroin rotary hoe were similar. The rotary hoe was probably a bit better. In terms of combinations, the combinations doing kind of a one-two punch with kind of uh, getting early season control with either the harrow or the rotary hoe when you can get those weeds when they're really tiny and then doing a cleanup that's getting between the rows with the inter-row tillage, that that was a good combination. What we actually found was the three-way combination of using all three actually was too hard on the crop. We had really good weed control, but we were suppressing our yield a little bit because our 
it was just too much for the crop to be because you're with the rotary hoe and the harrow, you're you're actually hitting and we're thinning out the stand and everything like that. So we found that either the harrow and then following up the row tillage or the rotary hoe and following up would do would gave us our best thing. And we were getting like on average, we got over 80% weed control, uh, you know, compared to a an untreated, unweeded check, you know, and our yields were close to our weed-free or hand-weeded check. So we were quite happy about that. You know, we were able to do that. Of course, none of these are doing anything on perennial weeds, you know, on these mechanical. Maybe your intro till if you have some Canada thistle or a bit of quack grass, it might cut off a bit of the Canada thistle or pull out a little bit of the quack grass, but really not much at all. But so for annual weeds, we kind of figured out a nice, a nice system there. Steve and his colleagues have also tried various methods of proactively reducing the seed bank of these weeds. Similar to the mechanical methods, some seem to work well, while others maybe not so much. When you do have these failures in lentils, you do, you know, it gets really ugly because the weeds grow way above the crop canopy and they're just kind of sitting there looking at you. And that kind of raised the possibility of doing what kind of some of the... um, I know it's been kind of popularized by the Australians. They'll call it's not harvest seed management, but it's a form of that of trying to prevent seed return to the seed bank and perhaps also affect the you know relieve some of the competition from that. So we tried two ways of doing this. One, we tried wicking herbicide onto the weeds above the lentil, like using these herbicide wickers that were made. That it would be essentially a PVC tube with a piece of nylon rope. And the rope would get wet from the glyphosate, in and you would, and you, and it would wipe it on there. And we also tried using things like dicamba in that, and a bunch of other stuff. And to be honest, it sometimes it almost worked, but there were a lot of failures, and it depended so much on the conditions at the time. If it was hot and dry, the wick wouldn't stay wet. And whenever it dripped, it dripped in there. Anytime we use something uh, that was a phenoxy type herbicide, just the vapor of that being close to it was enough to hurt the lentils a lot. Like I guess you guys down in the States know about all about uh, vapor damage from dicamba and stuff like that. And we tried the low, the low volatility dicamba, which should be lower volatility, not low. It still volatilizes, you know, uh, and that still hurt the lentils. So that didn't really work. But what we did do that actually was quite effective at reducing the amount of weed seeds that are going back into your system. Didn't really affect the yields of the length that much as we looked at using a, a, an implement that would clip the weeds above the lentil crop. And there's a, they're usually aimed at the organic market. And there's a couple or a more, there's a small handful of small run equipment manufacturers that are building um, devices that you can essentially mow your weeds or clip them off above the crop canopy. And in the lentils, I worked. I did a great job of stopping seed rain into your lentils. So it didn't really affect the yields of those lentils you were growing as much. But those seeds that were being produced there would not go back into your seed bank. So the next time you grew lentils, presumably, there wouldn't be as many seeds in the seed bank to cause a problem again. And we've talked about organic weed management quite a bit, but it's important to note here that this isn't just relevant to certified organic farmers. With resistance to group two herbicides, conventional farmers are also benefiting from these practices as well. Although Steve admits that herbicides are still mostly preferred by conventional growers when available and still effective. We're looking at using alternative methods in the 
in the integrated weed management conventional ag context because of the problems that were coming in, and especially up here in the lentil belt. You know, when lentils first came in, producers were using pursuit pre-plant. And then when the Emmy lentils came in, you know, the Emmys were working really well at first. You know, there was a way that you could uh, kill your broadleaf weeds with uh, Odyssey or Solo. So the, the group two Emmys, so the Mazadolins, so it either be a Mazamox or a Mazathapir, that they gave good weed control. But very soon we selected for group two resistant wild mustard in the lentil belt. There was some people making some really good money growing lentils in those years. And they pushed rotations and didn't rotate the herbicides enough. And we ended up with uh, group two resistant mustard popping up. And then the years started to get drier and group two resistant kochia became more of a problem. And um, that came an issue. So we've been looking at seeing if we could um, utilize some of these methods that we use in organic within a conventional setting. And they seem to work pretty good, but, but there were still herbicide kind of fallback options that would give probably just as good control going with a, a Sencor. Yeah, I think you guys use the same name for that herbicide down there. And then farmers could use Edge, Edges, oh, what was the name of? Ethafluralin, oh, how did I forget that? That a full application of Ethafluralin could give reasonable control of uh, some of, of the kochia and and uh, the Sencor. If you, if you did the time, you could still get it. So we never, although we demonstrated that we could like kind of reduce herbicides, and get good control with, you know, using the rotary hoe within a conventional setting and then increasing the seeding rate when it was weedy was effective. Uh, you know, when there was that herbicide fallback option, we didn't see the producer adoption of that. Wasn't that good? And while we're on this topic of herbicide resistance, Steve also shared some interesting work they're doing, which is utilizing drones to get a better sense of herbicide tolerance and resistance. Where we are now, because we're working with plant breeders and they're trying to find lentil genotypes that have uh, that have greater tolerance to some herbicide groups that are out there already. I've started doing a lot of crop imaging lately with uh, drones, UAVs, and started down that phenotyping uh, thing and have a whole phenotyping team with a phenomobile that drives around the, the plots. And, you know, we have a bunch of UAVs that we go and image plots. So we're developing phenotypes. Um, ways of being able to characterize herbicide tolerance in uh, large populations of lentil over time. So I've got, there's, there's a couple of students here working on that right now. You know, um, Brianna Zorb is looking, just looking at the basic stuff of defining what are the best criteria, what's the best timing, what's the best method, and how to phenotype the difference between a plant that has some subtle tolerance and not because we're looking for mechanisms in this case we're not expecting the kind of like a resistance like you would get to a group two where it's just a single simple mutation you can spray 10x on there it doesn't affect it we're looking for small differences and a couple of products that hopefully can be selected for and then you know and then over over time uh, bred for so that's where this has evolved to is uh you know we've kind of gone down the on one side the organic side of it and and try to use some organic tools for the conventional and that the uptake from that hasn't been that great, but I think it's because they can still get by with some herbicides that are out there. But, um, you know, I know, and I think in, I think in Australia already, I think they have a, uh, some lentil genotypes that have increased tolerance to Sencor and that, you know, if we could get that, then that would allow you to 
hit some of those broadleaf resistant weeds a bit harder and reduce some of those weed problems. But so we're trying to find ways of that. And there's a couple other herbicides that we're trying to find some greater tolerance for. But we're still essentially we've just kind of worked out the methodology of how to do that and as well as worked out the me- of how to phenotype it and then work out the methodology of how to extract all the plots. If you have a breeding trial that has, you know, 3,200 lentil microplots in there, you know, how to, how to extract all those images and label them and then, and then put them through a system. So now we can actually start to work on the problem. Now, you heard Steve specify earlier in this episode that all of this is really focused on annual weeds. Uh, But what about for perennial weed management impulses? Steve says in most cases, tillage still seems to be your best bet. Tillage tillage seems to be the only thing that you can really do, right? We've tried weed clipping. You know, there's some evidence out of Scandinavia that, you know, clipping Canada thistle can repeatedly can reduce the biomass. We've been trying to kind of see if that's replicable that experiment hasn't finished but i tell you those thistle patches are still there you know you're not going to get rid of it with it i think the phenology the the growth pattern of our crops is somewhat different you know because um the only time we get the thistle really overtopping our crop and it's not by a lot is kind of and i'm talking here in cereals in lentils you could maybe it could maybe work better because it's so low but in cereals or other normal tallish crops is right near the end of the year when you get those inflorescence popping up above there and kind of thistle. You can make it look nice because you're getting rid of all that purple stuff up there. But, you know, you pull the canopy apart and there's still a lot of kind of thistle in there. And, you know, reproduction by seed in Canada thistle, you know, that's a, an issue that it forms new new colonies, you know, but for your patch that you have, it's all vegetatively propagated. So that, that doesn't work that well. In listening to all this, one thought I had is what about trying to focus on the lentil plant itself to breed for a larger or more competitive crop in order to outcompete all of this weed pressure? Well, Steve says that would be nice, but it's not quite so simple. Yeah, I don't know. It's you know, it's called it's called field pea or faba bean, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's not a lentil any longer. I think you know, I've seen lentil diversity panels that have uh that have all the diversity that you can find in the world. And I don't, to be honest, breeding's a long, expensive game. It takes, you know, at least 10 years to get out of variety. And the differences that you see in other, we've done work in other crops like oat, the difference that you can see often aren't stable between environments because you have, I don't know if you know breeding, there's like the genotype response as changed by the environment. So you have G times E. So some you know, some genotypes will do better, slightly better in some other environments and some will do worse. Well, when you have weeds in there, you also have, you have another G by E. So you essentially have, you know, what your variety response is to the environment multiplied by what the response of that weed is to the environment and the response of the competition to that. So it gets really complicated, you know, and there, and I, to be honest, I don't think there's the diversity in lentil. The lentil varieties that are out there right now have essentially been selected to be they're they're the, essentially the tallest ones that are out there. When El Slinkard first came up here to the University of Saskatchewan, lentils before that lentils weren't grown under mechanization. People in places like Syria and Turkey and Egypt would pull them out of the ground and then hand thrash them. So he selected ones that were tall enough that you could actually combine them. 
And that's what really started the modern lentil industry is that. And, you know, people have always found taller plants. So like, likely not, you know, finding a more competitive lentil. No, I don't have high hopes. Maybe you could find 25% better or something, maybe let's say. Well, you can find that. You can increase your seed. You can double your seeding rate and get more than that or nothing. Well, no matter which of these integrated weed management strategies you are utilizing, timing is very important in lentils. Steve says that five node stage to the 10 node stage is critical. One of the earlier things we did with Leah Fedorak was work out what the critical period weed, weed control was in lentils. So we went out and did a, a series of experiments. And what we found is that if you keep lentils weed free, and this is with annual weeds, not with perennial weeds, because that's a different ballgame, but for annual weeds, if you can keep them weed free from the five node stage to the 10 node stage, if you can keep control weeds in that zone, you're home free. That's it. You don't have to worry about the weeds that start after that. And if you control them by the five node stage, they haven't done enough damage. So if you keep them weed free in that period, you've done your job. So that, I guess that my advice is do and do what you can to do that with a, to keep it weed free during that period. Well, thank you so very much to Dr. Steve Shirtliff for taking time to participate in today's show. I really enjoyed that conversation and we'll make sure we include a link in the show notes where you can learn more about all of the research he's doing up there. Also, make sure you're a subscriber to the Growing Pulse Crops podcast so you don't miss our next episode with Dr. Artie Singh. A mung bean is a very versatile crop uh, when it uh, comes to uses and I think the quality of protein and the market is just amazing right now. It's opening up in all different directions, not only in plant-based egg or meat and pasta and noodles, you know, so this industry is going to grow. I see there is a lot more benefit in growing this uh, crop, which is right now in a minor um, stage. But I think uh, in future it can become our uh, lentil uh, like Canada. Uh, however, uh, to reach there, we'll need a collective effort, industry, private and public uh, to bring this crop into the mainstream so that our growers can grow it and take maximum advantage. Again, make sure you have subscribed to the show on your podcast platform of choice so you can catch that upcoming episode as well. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, and the North Central Extension Risk Management Education Program. We're releasing these episodes two times per month throughout the growing season, and we want to make sure that this information stays relevant to you. So if you're finding it useful, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and feel free to tweet us by using the hashtag GrowingPulseCrops. We'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks. Don't grow too many. We like, uh, we've made a lot of money up here in Canada growing them. <laughs> <laughs>